parents told him he'd never get anywhere playing video games for a living. Now he's here. It's Behind the Line Radio with your host, Kinetic. And it starts now. Hello everyone and welcome to Behind the Line Radio, a podcast about the making of video games, the business of video games, and the people of the video games industry. I'm your host, Kinetic, a.k.a. Nick, joined once again by my co-host, Jeff, or Baron Fang, who skipped out last week because I think you didn't want to admit that I was able to get through Zelda 2 in one sitting. You got me. <laughs> I was uh, I was chastened and I, I just, I, I, I couldn't stand to... Uh... I couldn't stand to be wrong, Nick. That's why I flaked last time. Yeah. All right. And to continue talking about analytics and video games, I ha- we brought in a different guest. Uh, Steve, how are you doing today? Great. Cool. So last time we talked a lot about um, terms used in analytics and sort of the technical necessities of analytics, you know, data ingest and stuff like that, and um, some, I don't know, definition or implementation problems or, you know, a lot of stuff in analytics comes down to definitions and stuff like that. Today, I wanted to bring in someone else to talk a little bit more about how analytics affects games themselves. So uh, I reached out to Steve, and I suppose one place to start off would be uh, just just to get the conversation rolling, stuff like you know, uh, Counter Strike death heat maps, you know, those all come from analytics events, and you can see sort of how your uh, how your map sort of plays out in terms of where your choke points are, where your strategically important points are, and stuff like that. But a lot of these insights come from you know analytics events and uh, that sort of design insight. Um, I don't really have a much better sort of in to the topic because I'm not exactly sure where the conversation is going to take us. Um, but Steve, do you have any um, any thoughts on this to start us off? Uh, yeah. As a matter of fact, I actually went to a talk not so long ago on heat map deaths. It was Call of Duty, not Counter-Strike. But uh, yeah, that's definitely something that people want to collect. Uh, my, my big concern about analytics and games is how the feedback loop works. That is, it's it's fine to set up an analytics backend. It's fine to collect a lot of data. It's really good to hire analysts to look at the data. But at the end of the day, what 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 did you do differently is pretty much the only thing that matters to me. What did you do in terms of the users, not the like the game makers? No, the game designers. The yeah. game designers. Like, if you make this map and then you look at the heat death heat map and you every no matter what the heat death de- uh, heat de- death map looks like, you're like that was a great level. I did a great job. Then you didn't really need to look at the map, did you? <laughs> or if no matter what the map looks like, you're like, nah, I'm gonna resign the second story. Like again, you didn't really need to collect the data. So uh, at the end of my day, it's really about like. What choices would you have made differently, and what what is it? Your what's the problem you're trying to solve? Mm. Once again, it comes down to what exactly is the question. So, yeah. um, continuing on, which, on, I'm sorry, sorry, which too often nobody comes up with before they design the analytics, which is I think a mistake. Mm. And that's I think uh, that is more for the, the 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 importance of that question is more important for the gameplay side of things, which is totally relevant to the conversation here and less relevant, although not irrelevant, to the business side of things because the business side of things can somewhat be boiled down to certain, if not universally understood, somewhat generally accepted metrics, your retention, yep. your 
monetization. Yep. I mean, monetization is kind of the, the be-all, end-all at the very end of the day. Yeah. At the end of the day, you can measure how much people play your game, and you can measure how much people pay your game. And the truth is, more of both is better, so it's not super complicated. <laughs> yeah, so when you're going in, I, I would imagine going into, again, using the, the, the death heat map as an example, you would have to go in with a question of, or, or like an intention, like, is this spot supposed to be a choke point? Well, if it's supposed to be a choke point, then you can see that there are a lot of deaths on either side of it, well, yeah, that's serving as a choke point. Um, or if it's not, then what are the players doing? And then you have to ask the question, is what the players are doing better than what I had in mind when I started? <laughs> yeah. I'd actually I'd actually step back, like, two levels on the question, and I would be like, hey, so uh, what's your system for shipping new maps? Because... <laughs> No, I'm serious, because at the end of the day, if your whole thing is, let's say you're on console, right, and you make a CD on Xbox, and then you do analytics on your maps, you, there, there's really no good method for getting new maps out. So no matter what insights you have about the maps, you can't really do anything about it until you make another game. So mm -hmm. it's a very, very, this is what I'm talking about with the feedback loop. It's a very, very long, slow feedback loop um, if you don't already have a plan in place to reacting to your data. Hmm. That's actually why when I first encountered the idea of game analytics, I was confused because we were not on games that uh, allowed for network updates. They were, you know, single downloads. They didn't update or, or shipped products. There were no updates associated with it. Um, I, I imagine I don't know all the details of those ones because these were like in the uh, mid 2000s. I don't think yeah. those ones were for anything other than business intelligence, not not design right. affirmation or um, investigation. Right. So that actually kind of takes me to my day one advice for people in analytics, which is kind of go ham or go home. Like <laughs> just just have, like you said, like business BI intelligence, like how many people are playing, how many downloads do I have, how much money did I, did I how much revenue did I collect? Like really, really, really basic stuff that doesn't lend itself to analysis. It's just this is the number and it's in your email every day. Um, I think most of the time going beyond that seems like fun and people get really, really excited about it. But it's actually a waste of their time and resources. Uh, if you're going to do analytics right, you really want to go all the way to the other end of the spectrum where you track everything, you store everything, you build your own infrastructure, you have your own staff. Like for every analyst, you have a data engineer behind them. You probably have four analysts per t title or project manager, however you want to think about it. You're, you should roughly have, like honestly, if you're making like a free-to-play mobile, the idea of having fewer data scientists than you have artists is, is, is fine if that number is zero. Otherwise, they should probably be about the same. Interesting way to look at it. Although I would imagine that you'd probably wind up, if you're in a, uh, a support position, you'd probably want like more data analysts than artists because in some updates you're probably only going to need like half an artist. Yep. I'm just used to the sort of like there's, you know, what is it, two artists per engineer is like one of the scaling numbers that you use a lot. And the idea is that data scientists actually are going to generally outnumber your engineers. Or, again... You basically have zero. Uh, I've been I've been on the spectrum of basically one data scientist per 12 titles, and I've been on the spectrum of five data scientists per title, and I've seen what those different results look like. And really, the right numbers of, uh, of analysts and scientists you have on it are like one for your entire company 
or zero uh or like i said four or five per title is probably about right <laughs> uh interesting so um i think this might be a a, a good point to um to bring up jeff i know you have a question that that uh that interests you on this topic <laughs> Yeah, and it's um it's a question I think I I started to ask last time and I think it was a little bit premature. Wondering if there's ever a point at which there's a clash between analytics and the creative process. Like in my head I can picture some um you know lead designer who has a vision for the game and encountering it information from analytics that might <laughs> that might uh reveal that a a, a different a change of direction or or something is is necessary, but there might be uh, you know some um, personal <laughs> connection to to the design that, that the numbers are, are are clashing with. I'm just wondering whether the art and the math ever ever really uh, come to head in, in a in an explosive. Well, I guess explosive is is overstating it, but is there ever a uh, conflict between those uh, those camps? Yeah, but I think they only occur on days that end in a Y. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, that really gets to the crux of this is we're getting into a little more detail of like how to be a good data analyst and how to have good impact on your product. Um, I I think that that for first of all that happens literally all the time. I'd actually say that's one of the the one of the things that makes uh you better at this job is how well you deal with that conflict. Yeah. Um. It does happen a lot, and I, I, I say um, I'm gonna, just going to cut to the chase. At the end of the day, the answer has a lot to do with, uh, I think, the culture that your studio has established. Mm. If if you have established long, long ago through painful uh, uh, process changes that you're going to be data-driven and you're not just going to write it up on a wall because it's a buzzword, you're not just going to say it in meetings um, – then I think you have a pretty good chance of of getting to a resolution and a conclusion. If you yeah. haven't if you haven't just committed to to being objective and data driven ahead of time, you you design just pretty much tends to run over data science. That's been my experience. Mm. <laughs> um, I think it has a lot to do with just how games have. I think the way we make games now is evolving so quickly that a lot of cultures just haven't been catching up. I I would imagine I. My impression of the whole medium and the industry behind it is that it's it's been evolving very fast for a long time. I mean, it's it's hooking on to new technologies all the time and they keep like the the bread and butter, the mother's milk of the video game industry is disruption. Yep. And you know, digital distribution, motion controls, VR, it, it, you're always looking for something to, to unset the marketplace. So effective analytics is definitely one of those things. And, and because of all that, and because it's a creative field, I mean, I don't want to be disparaging, but the impression you get of creatives is that they're not necessarily going to follow the most um, disciplined route. Yep. <laughs> Um, which is which is not necessarily true for all. I don't want to be painting with too broad a brush, but you know there are certainly yeah, it, some. It goes both ways. So this is the thing. I actually had a fortunate time where I basically got to sit in one studio and sit in another studio that just had radically different cultures about how they treated data, and 
it's it's not that the creatives in one studio were good and the creatives in the other studio were bad. The creatives in one studio understood the importance of being data driven and the other ones didn't. A lot of it came down to people having an expectation of what you do when the analyst comes back with information, whether it's good or bad. Um, there There's an expectation in a data driven studio that almost everything we did is temporary. It's just it's, it's not even said out loud. It's just understood. Huh. Um, that tomorrow we're going to do something different than what we did today, that no matter how intentional this was, uh, we, we're going to change it, right? Even if I did exactly what I thought I should do and what I wanted to do, if I got every single feature in the game that I wanted, there's just an understanding that two weeks is going to be a different game. And in another two weeks, it's going to be a different game. Um, and, and, and the, the AB testing thing is another thing that I found is like ridiculously cultural. It's like, it's probably a, a borderline religion. Uh, I've been in a lot of places where you ask people, well, well, did you test this? And they're like, no, I just gave it to everybody. Well, then how do you know if it was any good? And you're like, oh, well, I don't, but um, I can't test it. And then we ask them why. And they're like, well, because people might find out. And <laughs> and like you laugh and I laugh now because I'm in a place in my life where that's just a funny answer. But but like you got to kind of follow it to the end. It's like okay, okay, so so what if they do find out they're being tested on? Well, then that would be bad. I'm like, but but how do you know? They're like, I just I'm like, and I'm thinking, trying to get them to the point where it's like the reason you don't know whether or not they found out they were being tested on is bad is because you've never tested whether or not that's bad. Like it's <laughs> it's it's a very aroboros thing. <laughs> and and I think there's this there's this risk aversion where. They imagine how bad it could possibly be, and that's so terrifyingly bad that they never even bother to check to see if that's right or what the frequency or size of that effect is. Um, but like I said, I think it's a cultural thing. Yeah. Do you think it varies between small organizations and, and large? Uh, I mean, in my, I have to imagine that an indie, uh, you know, indie, whatever that means. <laughs> uh, makes decisions differently than a, a large company, but I'm just wondering where analytics might play into those differences. So the the place I just came from was small, got bought, got bought, got bought, so kind of had different scales. <laughs> yeah. And and it, it just seemed like it was all over the place. Like our grandparent company liked analytics but didn't like testing at all. Our parent company loved analytics and testing, and our studio was really pretty good about setting up the infrastructure and then kind of dropping it on the ground. Um, so, yeah, I don't know that there's a massive trend between small and large. Both uh, Large is easier to enforce your will. Large is easier to establish a culture that everybody follows, I think, which I think is contrary to most people's experiences. You think a small company would be easier to instill a culture across, and I think that's not really true because you can, you can, you can just say this is what we're doing now in a large yeah. company and there's a lot of like management and, and layers on the ground to like enforce that being the thing that everybody does now. Uh, whereas in a small studio, you could say, this is what we do now. And there's like this one dude off in a corner. He's like, yeah, well maybe you, but not me. <laughs> and nobody's paying that much attention to individuals and managing them very closely. So you can get away with just kind of going off the rails. But yeah, I don't, I, I don't think it's a large small company thing. I think it's a uh, people who've discovered, how much goddamn money we can make if we just <laughs> listen to the animal. No, and, 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 and that's actually what it is. So we have an anecdote about this. Uh, without naming names or features, we had a, a team that was – normally you're just completely overworked. You've been in the games industry, Nick. You, oh, yeah. Like, 
there's a list of things you know you want to do, and then you just throw, drop half of them on the ground and understand you'll never get to them. So they basically if you're responsible, made, you'll do that. Yeah. Instead, you just yeah, and or there's firefighting. We're like, what's the most important thing I need to do today and then tomorrow, and then you never really even make a list. So they had a team of uh, uh, like a research data science group. And the idea was instead of working on a game, which is what most of them do, we're just going to go to the to the board of all that stuff that people said was a good idea or wanted to try and threw on the ground. And they that's a very cultural thing. The idea that I can hire people who aren't actually going to work on a product specifically, we're going to go and get more of this work done that we wanted to do, but we didn't have the time because we had other pressures. Uh, so anyway, they do this and they start testing things and a bunch of stuff they do doesn't work. Of course, a bunch of stuff they do has like small effects and they report that it had small effects. And then there's this one thing that they kind of tried two years ago. They've always wanted to retry when they tried it. They didn't do a very good job of trying it. It didn't get a good result, but maybe it's worth it. So they revisit it and they ship it on somebody's game and it, and it's amazing. And they're like, well, that's probably not true. So, so then they put it on another game. And it's exactly as amazing as it was the first time. And they're like, well, okay, but that's just two data points. Uh, and then they put it on another game, and it's still amazing. And they're like, there's no way that this feature is this good. And they're like, well, only one way we can find out. So they start putting it on their big flagship titles. And it's amazing. Long story short, there was a team of five people who specifically weren't working on games. They were specifically working on experiments that they'd wanted to run or features they'd wanted to test that they just never got around to. And they ended up lifting up revenue by about 10% company-wide. Damn. With one experiment. This is what I mean. There are companies that have seen that happen. It's not common, but companies that have seen these five people just getting into a backlog and creating, you know, however many million dollars of revenue. Um, uh, first of all, their jobs are super secure now, right? You're just uh, five people off in a group. You made this much money. You're never getting fired, hmm. uh, which in the games industry is a thing. <laughs> anyway, I think there are companies that have lived that dream, that have seen that happen, and it really changes your view of data and analytics in your culture. And there are a lot of companies, I think, who have had the opposite, where they brought in an analyst. It was maybe too early. It was maybe too late. Maybe they got listened to. Maybe they didn't. Maybe the title could have been there. Maybe it couldn't. But they've never really seen the success. And so I think they treat analytics as a bit of a, oh, it's this thing I have to have, like mm -hmm. HR or, you know, uh, uh, like – yeah, legal. Exactly. Exactly. It's, you know, or like some sort of ops process like ah, is this thing we got to do it being good or it being bad is not really that big a deal. It's just this thing we have to have. Huh? Yeah, I think um, there's <laughs> there there's probably also a bit of a mix there between, you know, listening to analytics on your business intelligence side and your design side. Some people might just say, oh, we need to track retention. We need to track ARPDAO. We need to track those things for user acquisition and mm -hmm. not dig deeper into the uh, what really drives user engagement, you might say, without trying not to sound too buzzwordy, but. Yeah, I'm actually on that boat. Uh, it's weird that I'm the guy whose job it is to do that, but I'm actually on the boat of the guys who are like, yeah, we don't really need to do that. Um, again, this is just like what you've seen. Uh, I, I've i seen it be spectacularly effective to just randomly guess and check, like do a thing, run a test, see if it was good, see if it was bad, completely agnostic, just like spam experiments 
try a lot of things. I it's been my experience that that outcompetes sit down, look at things, figure out what's going on, and then make a decision. Um, you'll be able to try six things by the time that by the time you've done the investigation, and even after your investigation is done, you're still just guessing. So mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of like my my dream my my dream about a, a, how a data science department works is literally everybody in the company I don't care where you work writes down an idea for something you want to try, and then <laughs> yeah. like every Monday we just throw a dart at that board and that's the experiment we launch. And if your game's big enough, you could probably pick five or six or seven things on Monday and, you know, just run like 1% test groups or something and and just see if there's any there there. Because I have learned that we are really, really bad at guessing what's going to work and what's not going <laughs> yeah. to work. And so these experiments you're talking about are like uh, <coughs> configuration experiments, right? Not necessarily. Like, okay, we could be on a game and you'd be like, look, right now armor costs money and weapons cost money. But I think that that's dumb because I play this game and I work here and I and I like my games. And it's dumb. Armor shouldn't cost money. Armor should be free. All right, cool. Write it down. We'll just we'll just launch a test where a bunch of our users don't have to pay for armor, and we'll see if that's better for retention or monetization or minutes played or sessions per day. Or we'll see if it works. And if it makes those things go up by 7%, guess what? Now we have a new game. You don't pay for armor. Hmm. Yeah. One of the tricks there, of course, is that you whatever experiment you run, you have to have the the game set up to be able to allow for that particular modification, particularly if you're going to say like, OK, we're just going to pick something on Monday. Yeah. Yep. So that's what you need a good AP testing framework for. You need you need a lot of things. So one, you basically need to have a live update thing. This seems to be a. Uh, uh, Duraguer on Apple Store, where Apple updates take so long to ship uh. that, yeah, <laughs> to ship and approve that you, people needed their own system. So I think the standard now is that you basically, when your game launches, it essentially talks to your game server, and your game server does like a config bundle. Yeah, it's like a config bundle handshake. That's that's and the so way you want to do it. Yeah, so you've essentially set up an app store behind Apple like in your game to do the package management. Careful, don't uh, say stuff like that in that phrasing. Apple might hear and get upset at everybody. <laughs> well, if Apple hasn't figured out that literally everybody's doing that, then Apple's not paying attention. Well, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's just like it, 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 saying that you're setting up an Apple store behind Apple sounds like you're running financial transactions outside of the App Store. Yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not actually running, yeah, I'm not running the part of the Apple store that Apple cares about. I'm running you're running the a Apple distribution, the care, configuration the distribution. distribution. Yeah. <laughs> I'm essentially redistributing what version of the app that I get without updating on Apple. My understanding is that as long as that, that basically Apple doesn't care about those minor version changes and updates you do, as long as you keep publishing your app to the app store, they don't really mind. Um, yeah, that's, that's kind of a different topic. I mean, they, they used to take every new release goes through the same process. Uh, and they used to take like a week. They've gotten a lot better with that. Now it takes, you know, a day or two, but it's still, it's not something you can flip the switch on and off at will. Uh, Google's a lot uh, different with that. Like you, you control. Oh, Google's, am- Google's amazing for this. Google actually understands why this is important and has that distribution process. So Google even has like, you can basically set up a version and then roll that version out to 1% of your people. And like, that's essentially your, your, your test group. Yeah. And then leave it there. Oh, and then, and then, you know, like on Friday, flip the switch and push it out to the, to the other 99%. It's, uh, Google also has the ability to run experiments with your store listings. Yep. So, I mean, that's a similar thing, but again, that goes to more business intelligence. So like, oh, if you use this store icon, do you get more click-throughs and downloads? 
Yes, which is a thing. Oh, yeah. Apparently, the color blue is important. Uh, <laughs> That's what they tell me. Town. That's what all the guys in marketing have told oh, me from the experiments God. is like shades of blue or violet. or. Can I get it in cornflower blue? <laughs> in cornflower blue. Cornflower blue kicks ass. Yeah. Um, there's also and, something. And you have to say. have a guy looking to the right mouth open screaming. Yeah. Uh, there's also something to be said for just changing your um, app icon. You get a weird spike in. Uh, uh, in installs or reactivations when you change it. It doesn't even really matter much what the change is as long as it looks different. I, I don't really know what that's all about, but that's something that, that seems to be a thing. Yeah. But to go back to the, how you do analytics, it's if, if there's one takeaway I have, it's, it's really the just do top-level BI and make it super lightweight. Get, get a free platform for sending and logging events. Don't even really build that much of a database. Don't get a data engineer. Don't get a data engineering director with a data science director and three data just go really really lightweight or go like all the way build your uh bundle uh exchange service build your a b testing framework have data engineers to to handle the heavy lifting for for your pipelines and then have data scientists just descend upon your game like vultures and just pick it clean of every feature that shouldn't be in that game and every system that doesn't need to be there and just just try to every week get more I, players, make more money, get I, more players, make more money. <laughs> I think you you mentioned something that's that's one of those, you know, uh, underappreciated aspects of this, too, is get rid of uh, things from the game. I mean, you can also find features that aren't driving engagement. And perhaps there is a fair amount of effort being put into developing this feature if it if it isn't worthwhile you can figure that out and and save yourself a lot of time and effort there as well it's a bit like um you know paranormal investigators who are are not are not wackos looking for uh proof of ghosts or they're out there to uh, debunk myths yeah so the the argument this is that perspective probably isn't universal to the games industry i think that perspective comes because i worked on midcore free-to-play for so long (laughs) my experience has been that midcore free-to-play games are game design wise very complex and that's good that's why we like playing them but they're very complex and that complexity begins to work against you as a game studio over time so there's a lot to be said for as soon as you realize you don't need this system get rid of it because it may come around to fuck you nine months from now when you're building other systems and other features that you do like or that you do want, that this will collide with that and, and mix it up. Mm. And it makes balance and systems design just harder. So oh, yeah. More when you systems work on, make more balance harder. That's – yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean that's – I think that's well known. Uh, but like when you're early on in a game and you're trying to figure out what this is going to be, so like design, testing, soft launch phase – Really cutting away stuff you don't need at that time is super valuable down the down, down in the road, because if you do need to make a massive change or a big turn or a big twist or a big update, having fewer systems in the way to, to make that easier on you is something you, you should really you'll you'll really appreciate down the road. Once your game's two years old and everybody's playing and you've gotten most of your installs, that stuff, I think, is much less important. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. There's a great quote about this from Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, which is, an engineer knows he is done not when there is nothing left to add, but when there is nothing left to take away. And I really think that that applies to mid-core free-to-play game design uh, extremely well. Hmm. I think um, – I'm sorry. Go, Jeff. Is it, is it possible um, 
I'm sorry to keep playing devil's advocate and just these questions come up to me. I in in my in my head I keep thinking that there's a, an analogy with sports here perhaps, you know, that there's a I, I, and probably because I watched Moneyball recently, where there's <laughs> probably where there's this. I, there's, I, I assume that there's a perceived. I mean, there is in sports um, conflict between people who who want to rely heavily on metrics and those who want to rely more heavily on gut feeling and, and instinct, etc. Is it possible it, in the area of analytics to to have them? become like putting blinders on where if you rely on them too heavily you you miss the forest for the trees is it is, is a it, little is, bit can you dive a, a little bit too deeply? Can <laughs> yeah you can you can spend too much time thinking about a thing and actually come back with the right answer but that thing is like not that important and you spent too much time on it and so in the end you didn't actually help does that make sense that's, yeah, that that's totally a thing of like, dude, if you would just spent two weeks doing the dumb thing, we'd be further ahead than you spending nine weeks doing this super, super delicate deep dive where yeah. where the the gut and the data science thing collide. And and this is I'll say as even as a data scientist is there's a it's just like science and religion. There's just a bunch of things that 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 science can't help you with. Right. Yeah. If you say, hey, I'm thinking about and then say this thing that you've never done before, like, oh, I want to make it so that um there's now a new uh, two-player arena version of my normal team-based combat game. Uh, how much money do you think it's going to make? That's like, okay, it's really hard for me to use data to tell you how you adding a wholly different way to play this game that we've never had anything even remotely resembling in the game is going to do, right? Yeah. So you're going to have to go with your gut on that. I'll t- we can A-B test and I can tell you what the answer is. But there's a lot of when you're doing blue water uh, features and blue water design, you're cha- not changing something that exists, but you're trying to add something that's just radically different. You're yeah. you're out there. Um, the data science isn't really much help. And he should say that if you have a data scientist on your team, uh, they should point out that, look, this is this is just a risk and there's really nothing I can help you with now. We can launch it. We can measure it and see how it works, and that's what we should do. But I can't tell you ahead of time. I can't predict the future. Can't predict the future. Yeah, I was kind of expecting that. That was where you were going to go with that. Yeah. I like yeah, the- and I think a lot of people hire data scientists because they think that, oh, well, you could tell me whether you know a two-player arena would be better than a you know a four-player uh, battle royale, and I'm like. <laughs> No, maybe you if you had both. a whole bunch of intelligence from a whole bunch of different games that are not yours, so you don't have access to them. Or if you're making a feature that's similar, <laughs> or if you're doing something similar to what you've done before, like if you have a game that releases um, maps and you want to know how much money this new map's going to make, the, the data scientist is like, I don't care that it's a new map. We've released nine maps. When we release a map, it makes between this much money and this much money, or re- you know, we get returning users in this much volume, right? Like I have something to go on. By the way, that's one this, of the things that can be really helpful with a, a smaller developer hooking up with a larger publisher because potentially, not always for sure, but potentially the larger publisher is going to have a whole lot of on-hand intelligence for how similar mm-hmm. games in their portfolio work, and they can potentially, not always, but potentially share some of that intelligence with the developer to help them out. That is absolutely 100% true. As a matter of fact, you can even do you can even do more than that. If you're a big company and you get you get an indie studio and you guys are in the same industry, there's often a like best practices playbook of like, look, we've been doing this for a while. We've tried a lot of things. We have learned you should never not do it this way. Yeah. And that can slingshot you so far ahead if you're a small studio because the the amount the cost to discover that playbook 
or to develop it yourself is ridiculously high. Yeah. And that and can you put can Havel be, under right there. Yeah. And you can, ha- you can be doing pretty okay and then get hit with this playbook and be like, well, that's nine months of work we have to put on our game now to make it match the playbook. And it feels weird because you're just doing what a bunch of people told you to do. But when you're done, often the product that comes out is just far more polished, far more clean, far more competitive in the marketplace. And it's absolutely worth the work. I also want to point out earlier you used a term that, that, um, that I reference not infrequently, the blue water tactic. And you, what you pointed out was uh, also very true, that going blue water isn't necessarily um, always the right move because there isn't necessarily any money to make to be made there. It's just because yep. there's nobody there. Is that because there's an unserved opportunity or because there's nothing to get? Mm. Yeah, my my philosophy on free-to-play games is, and, and you know this because we both used to sit next to Eric, is there's this, there's this clones are bad, I don't want to make a clone. Clones are bad, I don't want to make a clone. Meanwhile, I'm looking at the top of the charts and I'm like, well, you say that, but... <laughs> Every single, yeah, there's so there's a top 200. There aren't 200 different genres in the top 200. There's yeah. like eight. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's definitely something. Like, I'm, I remember back when all FPSs were called Doom clones, you know? Yep. It, it, at what point do you stop calling them clones and you recognize it as a new genre? Okay? Right. Not all, not all of the combat city builders or whatever term winds up being universally applied. I like applied. combat city builder. Yeah. It, they're not all Clash clones, okay? Um, yep. Castle Clash is nothing like uh, Clash of Clans. In fact, uh, that that's a game that I'd be kind of curious to see how their uh, analytics operate because they have a ton of different game mechanics. And I think the, they manage the balancing because most of them don't exactly interact with each other too much. They all kind of work to give you a little bit of a leg up in the main thing, but they don't stack like you can't come up with a game breaking interaction yeah yeah that's 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 advice that i've given in the past is to try to make your systems as orthogonal as possible Mm -hmm. like it's if you want to do stuff um and you can often do this in mid in midcore game design with currencies so if you have like only two currencies then every single one of your systems and and if those two currencies are used like on the same thing or for similar reasons then you're going to have a lot of interaction between your features but if you just like create a new currency from scratch so what is it um elixir in in clash did this when you just create a new currency from scratch and that new currency is only used for these kinds of thing this new system that you have and these new features that you have is only produced by new stuff you tend to be able to isolate these things um and i like that i'm a big fan because because i spent so much of my my industry experience trying to fix games that weren't quite good enough to get out the door i'm a big fan of simplifying design because design being complex has straight up fucked us on on development uh, way way more times than I can count. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, adding a whole bunch of different mechanics and d- like a new uh, currency or whatever can wind up making things less approachable for new users, and that's when analytics comes back into the business intelligence sense. Extra credits did a video on this. They called it what accretion uh, feature accretion. Yeah, that's a good name for it. Yeah. Feature is an F word. <laughs> uh, the great boogeyman of the game industry, feature creep. Yeah. 
so I, I mean, this is this is you, you're basically getting my philosophy uh, pretty much dead on, which is. And it's not that you shouldn't add features, but that you, you do actually, I think, have to add them as part of lifecycle management. Like as your game grows and players level up, especially games with progression, they level up, they get into the end game, they've worked their way through stuff, they've seen everything already. You do have to ship new content. You owe that to your players. Um, but when you're in the beginning, which again is where I've spent so much of my time, so I'm really biased. When you're in the beginning, you need to cut away everything you don't need and like put it in your backlog and get back to it later. Uh, because when you're trying to iterate and get your numbers up and get your metrics up and get out the door to where you can profitably market your game, you need as few, you need as, man, that, that job is so hard. You need to work against yourself as little as possible. Hmm. Okay. Uh, I've got one last question or topic, uh, which is to talk about um, how, I don't know, either looking at analytics might lend you to thinking this way or something, but trying to serve analytics for the sake of the analytics or falling into what might be a trap there of, we need to increase our revenue. We need to increase our retention. We need to drive players to this um, feature or something like that, or uh, to put it, Inartfully to to wind you if yeah, you wind up being net. exploitative with the analytics. That's that is okay. So this is this is goes back to the the thing I was saying before that, uh, about like not being willing to test. That is absolutely a thing you can do, but I think people grossly, grossly, grossly overestimate the risk. It's it's um it's a little bit like the airplane crashing thing. A lot of people, way more people are afraid of flying than they are afraid of driving. But like planes don't actually crash that often. Right. It's actually really rare um, using analytics to when you exploit people in your game, you'll know you're doing it. I think I think that some people over worry about exploitation. For example, let's say uh, I uh, have I have a bunch of prices for, for things in my game, both in, in maybe in time to build or gems to hurry or uh, magic dollars to to buy. Right. Um you could run an experiment where you double or triple or quadruple all those numbers to see if they, they perform better. And I think a lot of times you'll hear that, well, that's exploitative on the players. And I'm thinking, but would it be exploitative on the players to have or one third or one, one or quarter those numbers? And they go, no. And I'm like, well, but the thing is the numbers are arbitrary, right? We're making a video game with magic number values that live in a spreadsheet. So the number that it has today is kind of arbitrary. If, we don't know what that number should be then doubling it or tripling it or quadrupling it. It's not like, it's not like we took cheeseburger that had a market value and then multiplied the value by four. We don't have a market value. <laughs> We're inventing this stuff from scratch. So if I can divide it by four here, then I should be able to multiply it by four there because none of them was really first. There was no ground truth, right? The fact that I can try two different numbers that differ by a factor of 10 is either okay or it's not okay. It's not one of them's fine and one of them isn't. Hmm. Um, and, and that's that I think is a, is a sort of a canonical example of of people worry about being exploitative and and not like the argument that you could make is, well, you're making them pay four times as much as they have to for the game. And I'm like, well, I could argue that right now they're paying four times as much as they have to, because right now I could divide the cost by four. As a matter of fact, I could do that indefinitely. Right. <laughs> it's a magic number. I said it in the spreadsheet. I just go type a new number right now. Um, yeah, there's no. The, yeah, it's, it's all yeah, ethereal. It, Yes. And I, I am really having worked on a lot of games. I am really um, in I'm really strong believer in if you if if you make a better game, 
you will tend to get more 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 uh, players and more pairs. And generally, the reverse is true too. If people start spending more money and more time on your game, um, you've given them you've very probably given them a better game. Having worked on shit games and worked on great games, that really does seem to be the case. So as long as you're not trying, you're not setting out at the beginning to exploit players, I think it's actually pretty rare for you to run into that situation. Hmm. Fair enough. I would say, though, that there can be, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, the idea of running experiment and it possibly being a bad thing. I would say that there are some ways that you can run it badly like the case oh man would you like uh, to hear some (laughs) (laughs) i'm just gonna make a quick point here and then we'll get to the war stories uh because we're running up on a time limit here um but uh the zynga what was it um csr racing 2 fast and the furious bundle where it became they, they did it like way too wide scale and made it obvious that different people were getting charged different things and it caused a big backlash so yep you can you can run it poorly So I, I'm, I'm not trying to defend this, just telling you. The weird thing about those backlashes is they're very obvious, they're very public, they're very detectable. They actually don't have much of an effect on metrics, which is surprising. Um, it's it's one of the cool things about the working in data in the games industry is you find that people who cheat at your game actually play your game and pay for your game a lot. They're your <laughs> most engaged players. Um, people who complain about your game usually are still playing. Um, the people, when you, when you do something bad and you churn people out, it actually doesn't show up on the forums. They just leave. Cause the opposite it's of love quiet. isn't hate. It's indifference. Yes. That, that exact <laughs> thing right there. Now that said, don't piss off your players. You guys are in a symbiotic relationship. They want you, you want them. Everybody should get along. Don't piss them off. But at the same time, a lot of the really, really public meltdowns that you see are way less impactful on metrics than they are on perception interesting way to to describe it a symbiotic relationship because uh it's also somewhat adversarial because they're fighting over the game itself so it is adversarial right because because it's 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 the same like i'm trying to set a rate like i'm I'm specifically talking about free-to-play mobile i'm essentially trying to set like a wage rate right like you want to play my game and you want to get this much stuff but i want you to play my game and i only want you to get that much stuff and we're kind of like negotiating a wage here right like if if i if I make stuff way too difficult to acquire and way too expensive, that's basically like not paying you enough money. And if I make it way too cheap, that's like you didn't really do enough work for the for for the money that I paid you in my game, right? It's kind of a it's very it's symbiotic, right? Mm-hmm. I give you game, you give me money, and uh, we're both trying to make each other as happy as possible for as long as possible. Okay, cool, interesting stuff. Um, now we're time for us to wrap up, and uh, this is where we like to tell a bit of a war story from our time in the industry. Steve, do you got a quick anecdote to share with us? Oh god, what do you what do you want to hear about? <laughs> Anything <laughs> interesting. Well, I I had a, I had one suggestion. Uh I I don't know if this qual- qualifies as a war story, but I was w- wondering on the subject of analytics, is there any one like particular case you can point to where it was like the most surprising thing result or fact that ever came out of analytics that was just like yeah, like a head scratching moment that uh, people were not yeah. expecting. So it's that story I was telling you before where these five guys were just running, running through uh, random experiments and just shipping stuff. So they, they found this thing and it was 10 percent ish. I don't remember what the exact number was, but let's just say it was 10 percent and it was 10 percent. Everything they tried, they put it on all their games. The thing is, that change wasn't 
uh, it didn't change anything about the game. It was a UI change. Oh, neat. Oh. Oh, is that, was that something like you know the 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 pulsing Do icon I, to remind people I, that it's there? I don't actually know huh. if I can tell you what it was. So <laughs> fair I'm, enough. I'm, fair I'm enough. Gonna, I'm gonna err on the side of caution, but it was a UI change. <laughs> it was it was all. We're not actually making it any harder. We're not actually making it any easier. We're not making it more expensive. We're not making it cheaper. We're not doing anything that actually affects the core game mechanic. All we're doing is telling you a thing with the UI. We're just telling a story with the UI and it wasn't highlighting a button or changing a color. It was just framing. It was really just framing, um, uh, uh, difficulty just like, Hey, I'm just going to tell you something about how things are. I'm not going to make them harder. I'm not going to make them easier. I'm not going to make them more expensive. I'm just going to give you a heads up that this is what's happening now. And it was the most effective thing that they'd ever done. It was a UI change and it worked everywhere. It became part of the, the sort of, like I said, you have that, you have best practices and a, and, a, and like a, a playbook that you work out of. And it was yeah. the coolest thing ever. And it's, it became this really great story because the, it was, it was very good skepticism, right? Because the first time it happened, they're like, no, that's not right. Run it again. <laughs> and they ran it again and they're like, all right, still not right. Still don't believe you. And they got to four. I think they got to four games and then they got real quiet. And they're like, look, if we're wrong about this, we're going to look really, really dumb. Like we're gonna look like the dumbest people on earth. We need to we need to go back, redo everything, be super careful, and then tentatively. And then I think they undersold it. I think when they finally told leadership, "Hey, you should put it in something big and scary," they undersold it, and it way overperformed their underselling, and the whole thing just got away from them. But uh, yeah, they're kind of famous in the in the company now. <laughs> Neat. Well, yeah. <laughs> just goes to show skepticism is is good and healthy. Ask the questions and and all of that. It, it's it, this that story in particular gets me back to stop thinking you know what's going to work and what's not going to work. <laughs> Just write everybody's ideas down on a board and throw darts. You because you have no idea. We're <laughs> as good as we are at this. We are terrible at this. <laughs> we have no idea what we're doing. <laughs> and and the like. This is where as a scientist you can actually help. Look. I have no idea which of your ideas is good, but I can run through them and tell you after the fact once we've tried them. <laughs> it's, it's not about prediction. It's about verification. Yeah. Scientists can't tell you a whole lot about the future, but they can tell you a shit ton about the present. <laughs> All right. Well, that's our time for today. Uh, it was an interesting talk. Thanks for coming on, Steve. Yeah. Sorry for the technical issues at the beginning. Yeah. Well, we got through it. Um, and uh, as always, thanks for joining us uh Jeff? No problem. And if there's anything... Thanks, thanks. Yeah. Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> Thank you. If there's anything anyone out there would like to see me write about on the Behind the Line article series or hear us talk about here on Behind the Line Radio, you can always reach out to me at kinetic at enthusiacs.com. That's K-Y-N-E-T-Y-K at enthusiacs.com. Or follow me on Twitter at Kinetic Knows, K-Y-N-E-T-Y-K-K-N-O-W-S, like I know. I know things. All right. See you all next time, everybody. Behind the Line Radio is presented by Enthusiacs.com. For more podcasts, Let's Plays, articles, videos, reviews, and more, visit us at Enthusiacs.com. Also, send us a comment on Twitter at Enthusiacs.
View us on YouTube, Channel Enthusiasts, and like us on Facebook, Enthusiasts. Thank you.